Chapter 4 By the late summer, the news of what had happened on Animal Farm had spread across half the country. Every day, Snowball and Napoleon sent out flights of pigeons whose instructions were to mingle with the animals on neighbouring farms, tell them the story of the rebellion and teach them the tune of Beasts of England. Most of this time, Mr Jones had spent sitting in the tape room of the Red Lion at Willingdon, complaining to anyone who would listen of the monstrous injustice he had suffered in being turned out of his property by a pack of good-for-nothing animals. The other farmers sympathised in principle, but they did not at first give him much help. At heart, each of them was secretly wondering whether he could not somehow turn Jones's misfortune into his own advantage. It was lucky that the owners of the two farms which adjoined Animal Farm were on permanently bad terms. One of them, which was named Foxwood, was a large, neglected, old-fashioned farm, with much overgrown by woodland, with all its pastures worn out and its hedges in a disgraceful condition. Its owner, Mr Pilkington, was an easy-going gentleman farmer who spent most of his time in fishing or hunting according to the season. The other farm, which was called Pinchfield, was smaller and better kept. Its owner was a Mr Frederick, a tough, shrewd man, perpetually involved in lawsuits and with a name for driving hard bargains. These two disliked each other so much that it was difficult for them to come to any agreement, even in defence of their own interests. Nevertheless, they were both thoroughly frightened by the rebellion on Animal Farm and very anxious to prevent their own animals from learning too much about it. At first, they pretended to laugh, to scorn the idea of animals managing a farm for themselves. The whole thing would be over in a fortnight, they said. They put it about that the animals on the manor farm, they insisted on calling it manor farm, they would not tolerate the name animal farm, were perpetually fighting amongst themselves and were also rapidly starving to death. When time passed and the animals had evidently not starved to death, Frederick and Pilkington changed their tune and began to talk of the terrible wickedness that now flourished on Animal Farm. It was given out that the animals there practised cannibalism, tortured one another with red-hot horseshoes and their females in common. This is what came of the rebellion against the laws of nature, Frederick and Pilkington said. However, these stories were never fully believed. Rumours of a wonderful farm, where the human beings had been turned out and the animals managed their own affairs, continued to circulate in vague and distorted forms. And throughout that year, a wave of rebelliousness ran through the countryside. Bulls, which had always been tractable, suddenly turned savage. Sheep broke down hedges and devoured the clover. Cows kicked the pail over. Hunters refused their fences and shot their riders on to the other side. Above all, the tune and even the words of Beasts of England were known everywhere. It had spread with astonishing speed. The human beings could not contain their rage when they heard this song, though they pretended to think it was merely ridiculous. They could not understand, they said, how even animals could bring themselves to sing such contemptible rubbish. Any animal caught singing it was given a flogging on the spot.
and yet the song was irrepressible. The blackbirds whistled it in the hedges, the pigeons cooed it in the elms. It got into the din of the smithies and the tune of the church bells, and when the human beings listened to it, they secretly trembled, hearing in it a prophecy of their future doom. In early October, when the corn was cut and stacked and some of it was already threshed, a flight of pigeons came whirling through the air and alighted in the farm of Animal Farm. In the wildest excitement, Jones and all his men, with half a dozen others from Foxwood and Pinchfield, had entered the five-barred gate and were coming up the cart track that led to the farm. They were all carrying sticks except Jones, who was marching ahead with a gun in his hands. Obviously, they were going to attempt to recapture the farm. This had long been expected, and all preparations had been made. Snowball, who had studied an old book of Julius Caesar's, Campaigns, which he had found in the farmhouse, was in charge of the defensive operations. He gave his orders quickly, and in a couple of minutes, every animal was at his post. As the human beings approached the farm buildings, Snowball launched his first attack. All the pigeons, to the number of 35, flew to and fro over the men's heads, dropping their dung on them from mid-air. And while the men were dealing with this, the geese, who'd been hiding behind the hedge, rushed out and pecked viciously at the calves of their legs. However, this was only a light skirmishing manoeuvre, intended to create a little disorder, and the men easily drove the geese off with their sticks. Snowball now launched his second line of attack. Muriel, Benjamin and all the sheep with Snowball at the head of them rushed forward and prodded and butted the men from every side while Benjamin turned round and lashed them with his small hooves. But once again, the men with their sticks and their hobnail boots were too strong for them and suddenly at a squeal from Snowball, which was a sign for a retreat, all the animals turned and fled through the gateway into the yard. The men gave a shout of triumph. They saw, as they imagined, their enemies in flight and then rushed after them in disorder. This was just what Snowball had intended. As soon as they were well inside the yard, the three horses, the three cows and the rest of the pigs, who had been lying in ambush in the cowshed, suddenly emerged in their rear, cutting them off. Snowball gave the signal for a charge. He himself dashed straight for Jones. Jones saw him coming, raised his gun and fired. The pellet scored bloody streaks across Snowball's back and a sheep dropped dead. Without halting for an instant, Snowball flung his 15 stone against Jones's legs. Jones was hurled into a pile of dung and his gun flew out of his hands. But the most terrifying spectacle of all was Boxer rearing up on his hind legs and striking out with his great iron-shod hoofs like a stallion. His first blow took a stable lad from Foxwood on the skull and stretched him lifeless into the mud. At the sight, several men dropped their sticks and tried to run. Panic overtook them and the next moment all the animals together were chasing them round and round the yard. They were Gored, kicked, bitten, trampled on. 
There was not an animal on the farm that did not take vengeance on them after his own fashion. Even the cat suddenly leapt off a roof onto a cowman's shoulders and sank her claws into his neck, at which he yelled horribly. At a moment, when the opening was clear, the men were glad enough to rush out the yard and make a bolt for the main road. And so, within five minutes of their invasion, they were in an ignominious retreat, by the same way that they had come, with a flock of geese hissing after them and pecking at their calves all the way. All the men were gone except one. Back in the yard, Boxer was pouring his hoof at the stable lad, who lay face down in the mud, trying to turn him over. The boy did not stir. He is dead, said Boxer sorrowfully. I had no intention of doing that. I forgot I was wearing iron shoes. Who will believe that I did not do this on purpose? No sentimentality, comrade, cried Snowball, from whose wounds were blood was still dripping war is war the only good human being is a dead one i've no wish to take human life repeated boxer and his eyes were full of tears where is molly exclaimed somebody molly in fact was missing for a moment there was great alarm it was feared that the men might have even harmed her in some way or carried her off with them in the end, however, she was found hiding in her stool with her head buried among the hay in a manger. She had taken to flight as soon as the gun went off, and when the others came back from looking on her, it was to find the stable lad, who, who in fact was only stunned and had recovered and made off. The animals had now resembled in the wildest excitement, each recounting his own exploits in a battle at the top of his voice. An impromptu celebration of the victory was held. The flag was run up and Beasts of England was sung a number of times. Then the sheep who had been killed were given a solemn funeral. A hawthorn bush had been planted on her grave. At the graveside, Snowball made a little speech, emphasising the need for all animals to be ready to die for Animal Farm if need be. The animals decided unanimously to create a military decoration, Animal Hero, first class, which was confirmed there and then on Snowball and Boxer. It consisted of a brass metal. There were really some old horse brasses which had been found in the harness room and was to be worn on Sundays and holidays. There was also Animal Hero, second class, which was conferred posthumously on the dead sheep. There was much discussion as to what the battle should be called. High the end, it was named the Battle of the Cowshed, since that was where the ambush had been sprung. Mr Jones's gun had been found lying in the mud, and it was known that there was a supply of cartridges in the farmhouse. It was decided to set the gun up at the foot of the flagship like a piece of artillery and to fire it twice a year, once on October the 12th, the anniversary of the Battery of the Cowshed, once on Midsummer Day, the anniversary of the Rebellion.